0: Hey, good morning, you hearty souls. Good to see you. Good to be here with you today. As Kent said, this is a uh, repeat of uh, the teaching I gave at the Men's Advance back in October. Uh, so repeat for some of you guys. Um, the Lord continues to use the words in this teaching to prod me, so hopefully that's what's going to happen here today again for you. The lie of entitlement. And do you really, do you really want what you think you want? The entitlement mentality is the lifeblood of what our culture is running on, and possibly what the church runs on sometimes. And if you cut us, you might find that we're bleeding the entitlement mentality as well. It's a me first attitude that results in what uh, Galatians 5 describes as biting and devouring and consuming one another. Uh, It's the thought that I deserve more, I deserve better. Frankly, I deserve it all. And really, people should take care of me. I'm owed way more than I'm getting. It's when we arrogantly believe that we deserve certain rights or privileges or a, maybe a measure of success or even a standard of living. And when we buy into this mentality and it goes unchecked, it will bring ruin to us and everyone around us. An example in the absolute extreme of the entitlement mentality run wild is the story of uh, Ethan Couch. I don't know if you guys recognize him or remember uh, this young man's unfortunate story from a few years ago, but I'll tell you about him. Uh, Ethan is a young man who killed four people in a horrific multi-car crash. He's the son of a wealthy Texas couple who raised him to know a few boundaries It was a classic dysfunctional family with an abusive father and a codependent mother and lots of neglect. (laughs) Discipline was rarely enforced or given, usually retracted when it was given. And so, as a result, Ethan had a run-in with the authorities uh, early on in his life, repeatedly. He was allowed to drink at a very young age and even allowed to drive himself to school at the age of 13, and so when the, the, um, the, the head principal of the school that he was attending questioned that practice that he was allowed to drive at 13, his father's solution was a threat to buy the school. So wealth buys privilege, Ethan. At age 15, police caught Ethan urinating in a public parking lot while also being in possession of alcohol. Police then discovered a naked 14-year-old girl passed out in Ethan's truck. He was only sentenced to probation. Ethan's mother paid his fines, and when he didn't complete his community service hours, his alcohol awareness class, she took the hit and said it was her fault for not understanding the requirements. Years of this entitlement mentality came to a head in June of 2013, when 16-year-old Ethan, who is now primarily living in his parents' second home, he's alone, he's rarely supervised, He is partying with his friends. He's drinking, he's smoking pot, he's taking Valium. Early in the evening and running low on alcohol, he and his friends drive to Walmart and steal three cases of beer. Later in that evening, and now with a blood alcohol level three times the legal limit, Ethan and his friends pile into his truck to run another errand. But just a short distance away, there's a young woman. She's pulled off to the side of the road with a flat tire. There's three good Samaritans who have stopped to help her, and all are standing on the side of the road with her. And now driving at 70 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour zone with no attempt at braking, Ethan, in his dad's F-350, plows through the stop car and instantly kills the four bystanders. Throwing people from the back of his truck and hitting an additional vehicle, another eight people are injured and a ninth person completely paralyzed. Ethan, bloodied but unbelievably in one piece, can be heard at the accident site saying, I'm Ethan. I can get you out of all this. Just remember my name and I'll get you out of all of this. At his trial, his attorneys argued that the teen had affluenza, that he was unable to link his actions with his consequences because of his parents teaching him that wealth buys privilege. He was affluent. He had affluenza. His attorneys argued that he needed rehabilitation instead of prison. The judge agreed and sentenced Ethan to 10 years of probation and time at a high-end rehab facility in California. Ethan was lied to. He thought his actions had no consequence, that he was above responsibility to others. And even though he's an example in the extreme, some elements of his story may be present in our life. And so we make it personal. We ask the question, are we entitled? So if you believe the Internet, where all reliable information derives, that's it's you millennials, you, 30, you 15 to 35-year-olds. How many, how many millennials are here? Raise your hand. Unbelievable. We are absolutely surrounded. Watch out. Did you, get, did you guys know that you guys are the worst, most entitled, privileged generation of all time? Did you know that? You know, you guys with your participation trophies, your precious self-guarded esteem, you may very well bring about the endless civilization as we know it. <laughs> and and Willy Wonka confirms it. You guys are the worst. No, but I don't, I, don't, I don't hate millennials. I don't dislike millennials. Beth and I love them so much we had three of them. <laughs> but maybe it's not just you guys. Maybe it's my generation. What about the boomer generation? The 50 to 70-year-olds. And, you know, the other ones may not be true. That one is true. I am counting on you guys for my Social Security benefits. (laughs) So please, please hang around. Let's see. You know, that's probably an exaggeration a little bit, but relatively speaking, that's probably pretty close to being true. And that guy looks like everybody I went to school with, right? (laughs) And we know guys like that. You know, according to according to my parents' generation, the um, the silent generation, uh, also dubbed now they've been dubbed the greatest generation. And by the way, how's that for a self esteem title? The greatest generation, you guys are great. You know, according to them, I'm the I'm the entitled one. Our generation's the spoiled one. You know, the way you hear them tell it, you probably heard your parents tell this story. We had to walk to school uphill, both ways, through a snowdrift. Even when it was 90 degrees, we were walking through snowdrifts. Because apparently, you remember, in the 30s, it was year-round winter for those 10 years or so. And this was after they, they milked the cows, they collected the chicken eggs, they kept warm around a kerosene lamp. So, yeah, I'm, I'm the spoiled one because, you know, me and my friends, we had bikes to get to school and Pop-Tarts for breakfast. That guy's got it made right there. But... Maybe, maybe none of that's true. Maybe this is, this is probably more the truth. It's been said about every generation ever. But what about this generation? What about generation 1.0, Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were lied to by Satan, the father of lies, and they bought it. They bought the lie of entitlement, that they deserve more, they deserve better, that God was actually holding out on them. And you know you can picture the scene of what this was like. Adam had been given all that was in God's design for him. He was created in perfection, in perfect health, soundness of mind. He was given an unspoiled paradise. He was given all provision, he given meaningful, work, meaning and rewarding work. He was naming the animals, has dominion over all creation. It was absolutely perfect, absolutely glorious. And yet God's not even done. He's going to do more. He would now give Adam a helper, a perfect match for him and Eve, another human being created specifically for him. This is a perfect God-created relationship. It's not a fractured relationship. It's not a broken relationship. It's not a difficult relationship. It's a perfect union. It was a perfect union to set the standard for everything that was to follow them. And beyond that, not only were Adam and Eve in a perfect union, but they were in a perfect, unbroken, divine fellowship with God. A perfect union with the creator and source of all life and meaning and reason for everything. They were meeting and walking with God in the cool of the day. God had done it all. He'd given all that was needed, and he set the course for man to run. Absolute perfection. It was absolutely glorious. Yet into that perfection, Satan spoke and said, it's not enough. God is holding out on you. If there ever, ever should have been a time and a picture of having it all with contentment and peace, that was it. And if Adam and Eve in that are susceptible to the lie of entitlement, we are susceptible to the lie of entitlement. And we are bound to live it. We're bound to believe it except for God's work to remake us. So, are we entitled? Are we demanding or taking what isn't ours? Or another way to ask that may be more helpful to think about it, are we being consumers, or are we being contributors? So, this may work subtly. So, let's think about maybe some of the subtle ways. I'm going to give some examples, and just a caveat on the front end, I understand these examples aren't perfect, and based on anyone's, Particular circumstance may need to be shaped, so we understand that going in. So we'll start at home. What are our attitudes with our family? And husbands will start with start with us. Sometimes we feel entitled to our moods or our attitudes. You know, if we come home, we're stressed, we're busy, we're overworked. Maybe our wives are not uh, handling things in the home the way that we would prefer they do. Or maybe they're not conducting themselves in the way they think we should. And you know, what do we do? What, what do we respond with? We respond with an attitude, with a mood. We try to manipulate to bend things to our way. So instead of loving our wives, laying down our li- lives for our wives as Christ loved the church, we try and manipulate. We can actually be consuming our wives. We can actually be taking, taking their life from them. Are we being contributors or consumers? What about the wife dynamic? And I wouldn't dare to speak for wives, so I asked Beth, and she gave me (laughs) this example. Um, Wives can do the same thing. They can withhold their affection and their tenderness and their encouragement. And what about withholding uh, their respect? If their husbands are not leading the family in the way that uh, he could be or offering their support or giving their encouragement, maybe they withhold their respect. You know, and I'll I'll save you the expense, and it would go the same for husbands. Our wives are never going to do everything perfect, just as your husband's not going to do everything perfect. But are we limited to only being obedient to the command in Galatians 5 that husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives, and wives are to respect their husbands in perfect scenarios? We can't wait for a perfect scenario to be obedient to the Lord. Are we being contributors or consumers? What about the parent dynamic? To our children. Are we contributing to our children's lives in a spiritually healthy manner? Or do we default to a demanding position, exasperating our kids? Do we even hold our children to a higher standard than maybe we hold ourselves? I tend, I tend to a default position, as you'll ask my family. This is what I do. You know, of course, children need to obey their parents, and this is right. This is the command. But what I tend to do is to demand that obedience— um, I want it immediately. I don't want to explain myself. I don't want to give you all the details. I just need you to do it. I need you to do it now. And a couple of months ago, uh, my boys here on the front row weren't doing something that I wanted them to do. I don't remember what it was. Uh, they weren't getting it. So I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, what is it that, that has to happen here for them to get it? What What is going on? And God said, well, you're not being the father to them in the way for them to understand this. You haven't grown them in this area for them to be more readily uh, able to obey you in that area. Yes, they need to get it. They need to understand that that is the command. But first, the attitude doesn't belong with what you're doing. But first, remove the entitlement log from your eye and try to contribute to them in a way that grows them in this area so they can be more readily obedient. And kids, you're not off the hook. What about the children to uh, parent Dynamic those that you are still those of you that are still living at home Do you default to a take care of me attitude? You know parents should provide for their children, but are you presuming on your parents beyond what is appropriate? Do you guys ever leave a trail of destruction through the house? expecting others to clean up for you any volunteers no (laughs) Uh, What is uh, what are your expectations related to owning a vehicle Or paying for school and clothing cell phones or entertainment you know do you assume that your parents owe you all these things and what are you doing to benefit your family are you contributing in any way or is your life generally characterized by consuming and obviously we relate as parent to children but beyond that is our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ are you concerned for your parents do you pray for their spiritual spiritual well-being What is our attitude towards the church? And the church is headed by Christ, exists to glorify God, to build up and equip the saints, to evangelize the world. In light of that, if this is our description, what is our attitude toward the local church body? And what does it say in line with the the mission of the church? So do we demand a perfect church? broadly, this may seem so, as evidenced by the number of people that uh, fail to commit to a church, or they leave church, or they church hop. But I wonder about this group right here. Would we say that we are demanding a perfect church? I would say we probably not would not say it that way. But are we here uh, subtly grumbling and murmuring of things that are not to our liking? Maybe we're living with a low level of frustration or discontent with the church. Over such things as the content of our teaching, or the personalities, the style of our teachers, the music style, the volume, the service times, the programs, or maybe the lack of programs, our ministry emphasis, or maybe over our facilities, our environment, our congregation size. So take music, for example, something we all have an opinion about. Uh, Some people like traditional music. some, Some folks like more contemporary music. Some like the, uh, the presentation, the music and musicians, very polished and perfected. Others like it very free-flowing and kind of raw. And this is kind of borne out by churches offering multiple uh, service times with different worship styles. And that's not, that's not always bad, and that may be helpful sometimes. But that is a subtle nod toward consumerism that we would divide our congregations into different groups or factions just based on your preference. What about your relationship and responsibility to others in the church? Are we consuming when we should be contributing? Are we entitled to our spiritual privacy? Or is is that even a thing? Is that a thing, spiritual privacy? Are you actively using your spiritual gifts for building up of others? Are you participating in small group relationships or accountability groups? If you're in those groups, what is your attitude and what... um, How do you participate in those groups? You know, do you open yourselves up? You know, the Lord is at work in you in some way, and we need to hear about that. Or do you sit silently? Do you offer your encouragement, your thoughts? Do you offer your prayers? Do you offer your leadership? As we alluded to earlier today, too, about the ministry fair last week that Mike Patton did a, a great job during Sunday school, all the ministry opportunities we have here, are we entitled to come to church on Sunday morning and just to take in, um, the teaching and the music and then go home. You know, sometimes in life, there are times for that where you're at rest and you need to do that. But a life characterized that by that probably means that you bought into the lie of entitlement. You know, so we need to ask ourselves, are we actively serving the local body? Where are we plugged in at? Are you stepping out in faith and obedience in areas that are new for you? Or are you only cooperating in areas that we're comfortable with? Are we sharing the gospel? Or do we feel entitled to our fear, entitled to our apathy? What about our attitude towards God? God, What do we feel God owes us? Do we feel we're owed a reward for our actions, our behavior? So if we've been faithful with our finances, we're looking for the financial blessing. Or we've been praying for a spouse or child, yet they're still straying from the Lord. Or we're praying for healing, but the healing doesn't come. Or we're faithful in our devotions to meet God daily in our devotions, yet our days are difficult. Or we even think about our church community, about facilities. You know, uh, Lion and Lamb been around for 20 years and praying for uh, buildings to meet in, to expand on. And there's been lots of blessings along the way, but there's lots of roadblocks as well. So I'll tell a story on myself and gives an example of this. It's a little bit embarrassing because it's over something really petty, uh, but it was a means that God used to get my attention in this area to show me that I had uh, an entitlement mentality. So I used to be a home builder. For 20 years, I had the opportunity to build a lot of higher-end uh, homes for folks, and that was a really enjoyable uh, experience for me, process for me. It was a lot of fun. You know... Uh, finding out what people wanted in their homes, all the really uh, cool ideas they wanted, all the like, crazy things that they wanted, then being, being able to give that to them. Uh, one time I built a spiral playground slide in the middle of a house for a family so that their kids could slide from the first floor down to the, to the basement without using the stairs. Or you know, I was able to give uh, folks really beautiful spacious nice kitchens or theater rooms with a lot of high end equipment or even on folks that had acreage you know building ponds ponds for them and that was um that was okay, but the downside of it was I started to want some of those things as well, so I started to covet the house that we were living in at the time had a uh, in the bathroom, had a tub shower unit, like most of us probably have in our house, the kind where you step over the tub wall to get into the shower. And then you pull that curtain shut, and you don't dare touch that curtain on a day like today because that's cold, right? And so I started grumbling about having to, having to do that. It was so, It's so stupid. But I, I don't know why. That, this thing loomed large in my mind. Every day, every day I got in there, I thought, Lord, I hate this thing. You know, those folks got a pond. All I'm asking for is a shower. <laughs> but basically, this was an indication of my, the state of my heart, which I didn't realize at the time. It was an indication of the state of my heart. that Just a grumbly, mumbly attitude, lacking gratitude. Well, eventually, eventually, Beth and I got to build our dream home. And we had everything that we wanted, including a shower I could walk right into and we lived happily ever after. Almost. So we had, a, Beth and I had a lot of great years building homes. I mean, um, some years of abundance where we were able to really gather, gather in goods and store up uh, for some future times. Really great years until October of 2008, which is a date that looms large in my mind. Do you guys know what happened then? Do you remember? So the stock market crashed, and housing went in the tank overnight. There had been a, uh, a couple that I'd been working with on building a home. We'd been putting plans together and specs together to do this, and we'd been doing this for well over a year, maybe two years. And his, um, his means of paying for the house was going to be in the stock market. He had a lot of money in the stock market. He was going to take that out, and we were going to build the house. So... Um, Right around that time, he said, Mark, this looks great. We're going to go ahead and pull the money out. Let's go ahead and get a contract signed up. Let's get going on that house. I thought, yes. This is, this is a big deal for us. This is an expensive house. It's a $600,000 house. And this is basically going to set our income up for the next year. And so we were, we were thankful, relieved. And during that same week, he called back after the stock market went down. He said, Mark, we're going to hold on to that. In light of what happened with the stock market, we're going to have to put those plans back on hold again. And I knew then that was a gut punch because uh, I knew, well this, this indicates something's going to happen here. And it did. So overnight, all the plans that we had made, all the investments that we had made in like in rental properties or building lots or homes that we were going that we had to sell, that we had built, that had to sell, they all lost tremendous value overnight. And so we need to sell stuff quick. And so we're slashing prices. Trying to make plans, making calls, making the rounds, see if we can move some, some property. And we can't. The market is absolutely shut down. or like in a straitjacket, there's just nothing that we can do except look around and see. And so I start making plans under my own power. I owe, uh, I owe the bank money. I owe uh, a developer money, other creditors. So I've got to come up with a plan. So I go home and I I write up a sketch up a plan and I take it to the bank. I say, Well here's here's how you can help me get out of the problem that that I'm in. Now we can all kinda of take a hit and then we can all move down the road and keep on going. And they'd look at that and they'd say, Well, that's intriguing and uh we appreciate that, but no, we're not interested in doing that at this time. Okay. So I go home and I make up another plan. I take it back next week. What do you think about this one? Nope. All right. Go home and do another one. Take it back again. Nope. So now I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm, I'm angry. I, I'm i spinning. I can't get a foothold, can't get a handhold. I have no idea what to do. And so I'm pleading my case before God. And I say, Lord, I've conducted myself with integrity. I've conducted my business with integrity. We've prayed about every one of these financial decisions that we've done. We've asked you whether we should do it. We've been faithful to thank you. When the big work comes in, we would always stop and be um, uh, intentional about thanking God for what he had done. Lord, I need I need the rescue here. I need the bailout. And what it felt like is we were set on a train track, and we could see the train coming. And we knew it was going to hit us, but it was going to take years to hit us before we exhausted all our resources and and schemes that we could come up with but there's uh, surely it was going to hit us and so I'm I'm spinning I'm absolutely spinning and I'm vulnerable now I don't know what to do and so God is going to speak in to this whirling mess of my mind and our emotions our emotions and he's going to and he's going to do a work in me and so he comes to me in the way that he does, and this is gentle, and he reveals who I am, and he reveals who he is. And he said, Mark, you elevate yourself to the front of every story. You live for yourself, and you presume on me. And when God breaks through the fog in one of those more dramatic ways like that, there's no condemnation there. There's the facts of what it is. And there's immediate repentance. There's no arguing in that. I say, Lord, you're absolutely right. I am sorry. I repent. And then he begins to show and reveal what he's going to do. And he's going to strip things off of our lives that he could not have done any other way. He could have done but he didn't do in any other way simply because we couldn't accept it at the time. And so Beth and I, we're, we're talking about what God's doing, and we're, we're reading a book called Cat and Dog Theology at the time, which is a a simple but absolutely profound book. And we're reading that, and we realize the truth of what's revealed in this book is going to change everything. And we're looking at each other, and we're crying. This changes everything. And we can see what God's going to do, and we know it's going to be a process, but we can see what he's going to do, and we know that we're going to come back on the other side of this, and we're going to rejoice at what God did. Thank him for what he brought us through. So the next three years were the hardest financially that we have ever had. And beyond financial, it was multifaceted because there's all kinds of stuff that was involved with this. But finances is what he used to get our attention. But he brought us through that. Those years, spiritually, are unparalleled what God had done in our lives. So eventually he he allowed us to sell the things that we needed to sell including the dream house, we sold that, but it took us off the train track of where we were. So at that time, we moved back to the house that we previously lived in, the kind with the tub shower unit in the bathroom. (laughs) And that first morning back, I step over that tub wall and I pull that curtain shut again. And my mind flashes back to a person I was 12 years earlier. And I I chuckle to myself. What in the world were you thinking? I can't even conjure up how I felt that this was inadequate in the past. And I thank God for what he brought us through and also confirmed that we're good right here. This is okay. We don't have to go any farther than that. Our entitlement thinking, it starts subtly. But when it's left unchecked, it can change the course of your entire life. Second Samuel 11 gives the account of King David's life after he is established in Jerusalem. David's pattern as a warrior had been to lead the armies of Israel into battle. But in the spring of that year, at a time when kings go to war, David determined to remain behind in Jerusalem. Instead of leading the armies into, into war, he was idle in the palace. David has delegated his God-given authority and leadership to others. And we don't know what David's mindset was. Maybe he's resting, maybe he's recuperating, but the fact is he's idle in the palace. Or maybe after years of um, the hardships and difficulties that he's faced, maybe he's feeling entitled to some downtime, to some me time. But in that time, in the relaxing of his guard in that moment, David opens himself up to lust and then giving full vent To his lust, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he follows that up with more scheming and cover-ups and lies, which eventually leads to the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And we're not better than David. You know, David was a man after God's own heart, and God gave David his very words in the Psalms. If David is susceptible to the lie of entitlement, we are susceptible to the lie of entitlement. If we think that a little attitude issue is no big deal, or a little sitting back and having others do for us is our right, we've probably already bought into it. So what do we do? If we recognize we're in entitlement, what do we do? I think the first thing that we need to do is remember what we are entitled to. There is something we're actually entitled to. There's something that we've worked for, there's actually something that we deserve, and that is death. In Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. and But for the free gift of God, by God, in Jesus Christ, eternal life in Christ, that's what we're going to have. But God is merciful. In Psalms 1 and 3, he says, He does not deal with us according to our sins and nor repay us according to our iniquities. Instead... He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. We have been pardoned from eternal punishment. We were on death row, and now we're not. And with that news, what else would we demand? What else do we dare demand? Nothing. Nothing. If we can really take hold of this reality and take it into heart and have it as our core, it's the place where we need to start. A constant state of humble gratitude to God is the posture that we should adopt. And Jesus' example of humility should be the template for our life as laid out in Philippians 2. Paul instructs us how we should relate to one another, and he points to Christ as our example. Philippians 2 says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, and the answer is yes, if there's any comfort in love, yes, any participation in the Spirit, yes, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the only one who's ever truly been entitled. Yet he laid aside everything for God's glory. He didn't hold on to equality with God. He was born as a man, yet taking the role of a servant and being obedient in death and yet humbling himself even further by dying as a criminal. Entrusted and submitted to God, Jesus makes a race for the bottom to ensure our salvation and for God's glory. This is the attitude that we should long to have. This is the attitude I long to have, that we would make a race for the bottom for God's glory. There's another example from King David's life, and this is a better time in David's life. This is the good David versus the bad David. It's a time in his life when he's submitted to God. And as you know this story, Saul was Israel's anointed king until through his disobedience God rejected him as king. And then David, as a young man, is anointed as Israel's future king. But it's going to be some 20 years in the making before David is actually ruling as God continued to allow Saul to rule during that time. During that period, while David is in service to Saul, he is consistently mistreated by Saul, and eventually he becomes a fugitive of Saul as Saul uh, pursues him to take his life. So David is on the run from place to place for years. At one point, he's hiding in a cave with his men. Saul and his armies in pursuit of David as per normal are unaware of David's presence in the cave. Into that very cave, Saul steps in to relieve himself. And so you can picture the scene. Saul is now vulnerable. His life is potentially in David's hands. David now has the opportunity to end a lifetime of running and abuse by killing Saul. David's men are right there encouraging him to do so. And they're, in fact, saying that this is ordained from the Lord. This is the time for you to take Saul's life. And we would probably think the same thing, that this is David's right. Saul has been rejected, and it is now time to set things as they should be. But David has entrusted his life and his future to God, and he submitted to God's authority. He refuses to raise his hand towards Saul, and he lets Saul escape. Instead of demanding or taking his right, David trusted God to set things right in his perfect timing. So if we see ourselves um, in this, if we see ourselves as entitled, and if we desire to be relieved of that attitude, sometimes God will point these things out to me, and I think, well, Lord, I'd, I'd love to do that. But, you know, you get a few years under your belt, and there's enough failure there, you think, can this even really be possible, even though I desire it? The good news is, is that Colossians 3 exhorts us that we can live this kind of life that we have a new self to put on. And Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, paraphrase, which is entitlement. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On account of entitlement, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all paraphrase. There are no distinctions between us that we should covet. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And Paul is using a metaphor here for taking off old clothing and putting on new clothing for what Christ has already done in us. Because we now stand before God. We're chosen and we're considered holy and beloved. And so by God's spirit, he will enable us to live up to this. And we must live up to who he's called us to be. You know, every new day that God grants us, we can wake, we can repent of who we've been. We can open our word and reorient our mind. We can put on our new self. We put on our new coat, our servant coat, who we we are now. We put on our new self, our new life hidden with Christ. We're no longer committed to taking for ourselves, demanding for ourselves, but we're committed to service to others for God's glory. My mother-in-law has a phrase that she likes to use, which I like as well. She says, this isn't your last supper. And so when my family's out to eat and someone's struggling with the menu, like they inevitably do, can't figure out what to eat, the waiter's been by to the the table a few times. Are you guys ready to order? No. You need a few more minutes? Yeah, we're going to need an hour or so. (laughs) This phrase will come out. You know, this isn't the last supper. You know, you're probably going to eat again another couple hours, so, you know, move on. And she's implying that this, this dinner, this meal, whatever you're going to order, doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to get everything right here. You're going to eat here another few hours. You're going to get another shot at it. So let's don't, let's don't uh, stress over this deal. You know, and this, this life is not our last supper either. We don't have to get everything right or th- everything that we think that we need to have or everything that someone tells us that we need to have. This isn't, our, this isn't the end game. Our true life, our eternal life, is waiting for us. And contentment doesn't come when we get everything that we think that we want anyway. We've seen that over and over. It's proven over and over, and you guys know that. It's only when we're satisfied with our God-given place and role as servants that we find life. And so in this role of servanthood, we also get a bonus. We get the fruit of this new life, and that is peace and contentment. Because there is peace and obedience to God. When we come to the end of our striving, our clawing, our demanding selves, there's peace. And Colossians 3 continues. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And this is important. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The peace that we gain is closely associated with thanksgiving. And you'll notice that whenever um, entitlement is present, whenever demanding is present, gratitude and thankfulness are missing. And it's the attitude of this thankfulness that will keep us humble and at rest in God. And finally, in Galatians, it says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And then the warning. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we're free. You know, the weight comes off your shoulders. You don't have to be yourself. That's, that's a relief for me. I'm a wearout. That's my family. Maybe you feel the same way. We don't have to be our old selves. We don't have to demand our rights. We don't have to protect our self-esteem. We don't have to entertain every feeling that runs through our brain. We don't have to be offended. We're settled and at peace, and we're free to love and serve each other. We don't have to give in to the live entitlement. We need to recognize it for what it is. The live entitlement comes like a telemarketer's call every day. It's a scam. There's absolutely nothing there. It's an illusion. So we just hang up and we move on. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you how that you uh, reveal who we are. Lord, but you also come in and you heal. And Lord, you don't bring condemnation, you bring healing and forgiveness. And, Lord, where we've um, bought into this, Lord, I ask that you would forgive us. Lord, where we uh, don't realize it yet, I pray that you would show us these areas, Lord, and just root them out by any means necessary Lord, so that we can give you our lives, submitted to you, submitted to your authority, and trusting in you for our lives, Lord, that we can commit to a life of servanthood. We thank you for this role. We thank you for who you've created us to be. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to walk in that now. Amen.